Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ramblin' Rev. I am your host, Pastor Scott Dalen, an ELCA pastor in Southwest Iowa, and I present these episodes every week for a couple of different reasons. It's the first of which is to take my brain out of the mode of background work over the course of the week and move into the process of writing and preparing the sermon that I will preach to my congregation for the weekend. That's the first reason I do these. The second is just to allow you, the listener, who have graciously given of your time to come by and listen to me ramble for a few few minutes to gain some different insight into the assigned text for the week based on the revised common lectionary. So that is why I do these. This particular Sunday, which is March 1st, 2020, the first Sunday of Lent, our gospel lesson is coming out of Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Now, where are we? Lent, new season, all that fun stuff. If you happen to catch my last episode, which was a midweek, sort of a special one. We were looking at the Ash Wednesday situation, which is really the beginning of the season of Lent. And so I kind of talked a little bit about Lent and what we're moving towards. Lent is a 40-day season preceding Holy Week and finally uh, the culmination at Easter. As things are moving towards the betrayal and arrest and and torture and subsequent death of Jesus on the cross, that's kind of where this is all heading. And it all kicks off there with with Ash Wednesday. So that's kind of where we were at there. Some people tend to consider this a season of darkness or a season of preparation. A lot of different people take a lot of different stances on the season of Lent. I'm coming to find out on Twitter and social media that a lot of people don't even like Lent and they think it's anti-biblical. I don't know what's up with that. But here in the Lutheran tradition anyway, we celebrate Lent and I think it's a wonderful time and a wonderful season of the church year. That's just my take. So let's move back into it. As we look at the first Sunday in the season of Lent, it is always the story of the temptation of Jesus. As Jesus is led into the wilderness under the power of the Holy Spirit, takes place right after the baptism of Jesus, uh, literally right after in all three of the synoptic gospels. We hear about it, that he's baptized, and then immediately goes into the wilderness where he is tempted for the period of 40 days. Now, Mark doesn't have much in the way of details. Basically tells us, hey, 40 days, Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted. There were wild beasts there. That's, that's only in Mark. But both Luke and Matthew have the larger account. They're very, very similar in terms of details given. Although there is a difference, a pretty major difference between Matthew and Luke in that they switch the order of the three temptations that we hear about. Side note, as we think about the 40 days of temptations, there's a little bit of ambiguity. Mark makes it sound like the temptation is going on over the course of the entire 40 days, but some of the wording in the other two gospels kind of make it sound like, well, maybe he was just in the desert fasting for 40 days and that's when the temptations start. That's sort of the sensibility that we get here in Matthew because of what the first temptation is. That being said, these are the three temptations that we hear about, and the differences that I've been talking about between Matthew and Luke really focus around the order. The first one is the same in both, but then they uh, switch up the order of the other two. In Matthew, we have the turn stones into bread and then then throw yourself down, and then finally, all the kingdoms of the world I will give to you. Luke switches those last two around. But all of that being said, background work aside, or background of the, the season and the, the specific Sunday aside, let's read it, and then we'll get into it some more. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. But the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and suddenly the angels came and waited on him. Okay, so that's the reading. Before we really get into this, I want to point out something that really comes from a translation situation. And it has to do with devil uh, that we hear in there. Or one point we hear him called the tempter. And he gets called Satan at one point too. We have these different things. And this was one thing that really sort of grabbed my attention as I was working with the Greek translation of this, something I do every week. It's actually more often than not that within the narration... We, what we call the devil or Satan or whatever is called the slanderer. That's the, uh, the, the, the more direct translation, the slanderer. Four times that comes up right away to be tempted by the slanderer. And then, uh, then the slanderer took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle. Uh, and again, the slanderer took him to the high mountain. And then finally, the slanderer left him. So all of those things are in there. Satan is used once, and that's what Jesus actually calls him right away, away with you, Satan. Satan is, is almost, it's uh, satana, which is the Greek for the, the adversary, or the adversary is, is what Satan literally means, get away from me, adversary. And then we actually have the tempter, that, that we, we hear that, and it was in this translation that I read, the tempter came and said to him, and tempter is, is interesting because both tempter and then Satan are in the nominative form when we hear them in here. Literally, they are names. They are proper names. The tempter is who this being or this entity is. And then Satan, Jesus is saying, get away from me, adversary. You are my adversary. But the other ones, the slanderer, is interesting to me because in the end, everything that Satan or the devil or whatever we want to call, where, where we're going with this or where it seems to be coming from is that he is attempting to get Jesus to subvert God or to step away from God or even twist what powers and abilities and divine status that Jesus carries. All of this, he's trying to twist it away from the intention of what's what's going on. So I think that's all very, very interesting, as, especially as we consider that slanderer, that's the translation of di Diabolo or Diabolon, I'm probably mispronouncing that ever so slightly, but Diablo, which is, is kind of a Spanish version, uh, that's where we get devil, what we tend to call the devil. But devil's really not accurate. It's the slanderer, whatever that means, the one who will try and turn us from God or twist what God has said. And all of that is what's going on here. We've got these different temptations that are being used on Jesus to try and get him to turn away. Now, I heard in another uh, podcast that I listen to every week, I heard them talk about this idea of this tactic that's being used is who's going to take care of you. And it starts with the temptation to take care of yourself, provide for yourself, 
Then the question of will God really provide for you? And then finally, I will provide for you and I being the devil or Satan that that it's really kind of twisting it away. And th- and that's what we have with if, if you're hungry, which seems to be the very first situation that's coming up. If you're hungry, then I want you to provide for yourself. Use your power to twist God's creation away from the way it was created. And that's the first one. And then, well, if you are really the son of God, if you are who you say you are, prove it. Let, let's test God to see if God will really provide for you. And then finally, you know what? I will provide for you. Just turn your back on God. That, that's one way of looking at this that I, I, I kind of appreciate. That's probably not the direction I'm going to really go with it, but I think that's a, a very good interpretation of this passage. But what I really, really take out of it kind of stems from that, but a slightly different tactic on it that the basis for all of this temptation really seems to be if you are who you say you are, prove it. And we hear that in the first two. If you are the son of God, do this. If you are the son of God, do this. And the devil even uses scripture to try and trip Jesus up. So I think that's always funny. As I look at this with my confirmation students, which I just did recently, I say, you know, sometimes people think that if you just know enough scripture and can quote enough scripture, you'll be good to go. Well, you know what? Satan knows scripture too and uses it against Jesus, uses it as a form of temptation against him. So simply knowing enough scripture is not going to, not, not going to protect you. It seems to be the takeaway from that. But it really stems from this idea of if, if you are the son of God, prove it, that it's not enough just to be just to be content in that identity. But I want you to prove it to me. I want you to prove it to yourself. I want you to prove it to everybody. And as I think about this and, and the direction that I'm going to go with this sermon is this need to prove ourselves. And that can manifest itself in many ways. But um, especially here in the United States, we have this idol of busyness. We think if I just work harder, if I just work more, one more meeting, one more hour of work, one more project to tackle, one more email to answer, one more phone call to return, on and on and on and on and on. If I just do that, then I will show that I am of worth. I am worthy of whatever position or, or authority I've been given or, or that I belong or that I am not an imposter, that I should be here. And it, it's, it seems to indicate in a lot of ways, even a anxiety that we are good enough and, and that who we are is not enough to say that simply because I am a human being, walking the earth, I am of value, but I have to work to earn it. And, and that really dovetails off of a theme that has, has been emerging in, in recent weeks of, of uh, being worthy, being able to earn justification in the sight of God, which we know we never will, or justification in the sight of one another, which who are we, who are we trying to impress? Who are we trying to uh, live up to? All of that idea. But I can't help but think that through all this, all of this stuff that Jesus continues to resist, that he knows something that we need to remember, that I am enough simply because of who I am. And who am I? Well, in Jesus' case, I am the son of God. We have just heard right before this, literally right before this, at the end of chapter three is the baptism of Jesus, where he, he hears the voice. We all hear the voice. This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus already knows that God is pleased with him, simply in his identity as son of God. And we share in that same identity through our baptism. We are claimed by God as beloved children. We are made fellow heirs in the promise. We have all of this 
in the scriptures, the promises that we have. And we cling to the truth of that. We cling to the truth that I am a child of God. And that means that I am enough, that God has claimed me and I don't have to prove it. I don't have to prove it to anybody else. I don't have to prove it to God. I sure as hell don't have to prove it to the devil. But that temptation, that little voice is always in the back of our heads. And kind of one more thing from that is the truth that is revealed in that identity, child of God, beloved child of God. It's not just about who we are, but it's who that identity, whose we are. We belong to God. God has claimed us. Just as God has claimed Jesus as one in whom I am well pleased, God calls humanity very good. That's a, the basis for who we are, who our existence or where our existence starts. We start from a place that's good. And because of that, God claims us. It's not just about who I am, though that's important. It's also about whose I am. So that's really kind of at the heart of, of what I'm taking from this, the direction that I'm going to go with the sermon. It's something that I get pretty excited about. But uh, one last thing before I wrap it up, and it's, it goes back to another translation thing. I meant to talk about this earlier, but then I kind of blanked on it. So we have at the end of this, once the period of temptation is over, whether the temptation is happening at the end of the 40 days, or it is the 40 days of temptation, either way, we hear in the translation, almost always the devil left him or Satan left him. And it's actually Satan released him or the Diablo, the slanderer released him. And what I find interesting about that is this idea that whatever is going on, whatever the situation seems to be, the power, the, the, the control seems to be in the hands of the one who is doing the tempting, that that while Jesus has the ability, the divine ability to withstand these temptations, there seems to be a, a power or a control that's in the hands of the other. And we hear at this time that he released Jesus and, and, and went away. And then we hear in Luke's gospel, he left him until an opportune time, whatever the heck that means. But, but that's an interesting situation to remind us that temptation... The temptation is in the realm of another one. And now this kind of leads us down the pathway of all kinds of spiritual warfare and what's the basis for evil and is the brokenness part of us and is the brokenness from outside of us. And, and that's all kinds of cans of worms that I'm not really intending to open right now. But, but it's interesting to consider that, that the source of temptation lies from outside of us. And that's important to realize or to remember especially if we go to the idea that nothing separates us from God's love. And boy, I'm falling down a rabbit hole here, but that's my go-to set of verses. And it comes out of Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Nothing in this reality at all can separate us from the love of God, the love of the one who claims us. And that claim has happened through Jesus, that not even the power of the one who can tempt us is enough to overcome and separate us from God's love. That's the basis of the gospel right there, and, and that's something that I definitely cling to no matter what happens. So that's where we're at, and yeah, I like it. We'll go from there. If you appreciate these, these episodes and um, if you're listening on iTunes, if you'd like to consider leaving a rating and review, that would be spectacular. Always helps to put this podcast in front of other people, so that would be spectacular if you were willing to do that. Otherwise, I hope you have a blessed week. We will catch you next time.